0: There are two introductory topics I want to deal with. The first is two ways to live, and uh, the second one that you'll see in a little while uh, is uh, about these six lectures I'm giving now, but the first one's going to take quite some time. It's about two ways to live. Now, on another occasion, I will argue for a theology of evangelism, but today, and in this series, I'll be working on a basic assumption That you know that God's plan for the world, seen in, say, uh, Luke 24, uh, as prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament, is twofold. One, that Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. And two, that repentance and forgiveness should be preached to all nations in his name. We are living in that second period. We are not looking forward to the Christ coming to die and rise again. We are proclaiming the Christ's death and resurrection for the repentance and forgiveness of sins for all nations. We live, in other words, in the gospel epoch of God's sovereign plans to bring all things under the headship of Christ. That is why the world exists at the moment, to bring all things under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once that is accomplished and finished in God's purposes, the world comes to an end, At the world as we know it comes to an end. The reason why we have the 21st century is because of the first century. Now, it's to bring Christ's mission on earth. He came to save sinners, and our mission on earth is to preach the gospel, to bring glory to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and to save sinners by his death and resurrection. So we Christians are to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, who followed the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, by laying down our lives for the salvation of others. And in so doing, we will be fulfilling God's plans for the earth and we will be growing to be like Christ. For this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to set up new Christian music groups. (laughs) Is not how the verse finishes. And we become like Christ and follow Christ when we lay down our lives for the salvation of others, as Paul did and set us the example in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, if you don't recognise what I'm saying, 10, 31, 11, 1. Now, as you are training yourself to be a leader amongst God's people, to be the teachers of God's word, you need to be equipped in evangelism so that you can preach the gospel yourselves, so that you can model gospel preaching, so that you can unite the congregation in the gospel, and so that you can train congregational members and other Christians to be able to share in the mission of preaching the gospel to the world. Too many people pass exams, lead Bible study groups, become rectors of churches, get PhDs in the New Testament studies and become bishops and archdeacons and all the rest of it without ever leading anybody to Christ without ever preaching for salvation, without ever training others to evangelise. The New Testament was written by a band of evangelistic missionaries. That's who they were. That's what their life was about. That's what their teaching was about. And the first glimpse we get of Jesus in his ministry in Mark chapter 1 is as an evangelist. If you ask people, give me a word to describe Jesus, they'll say teacher, saviour, lord, they'll say healer, they'll say, but hardly anybody will say evangelist. But the very first image you have of Jesus in Mark chapter gospel, the first when his gospel starts, when John is put in prison and he commences his ministry, his ministry is evangelism. That's what it was about. Pastors are shepherds of flocks, not counsellors. A shepherd who only has one sheep has a very limited future. You'll need two to get another flock. (laughs) Just one, you're just waiting for that one to die and you don't have anything to do anymore. Pasturing is not looking after one sheep. Pasturing is looking after a flock of sheep. That's what a pastor is to do. And the flock is held together in unity, and church unity comes, in the gospel mind. It's that we share together in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we think in the same way in which he thought. That the desire for unity is that you might be of one mind, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. You unite your congregation by so teaching the gospel that they are united in their understanding of the gospel. So pastors need to do these two things as they unite. They need to unite by training the congregations in the gospel and in preaching the gospel. That is, as a pastor of a congregation, you need to clarify. You need to simplify. You need to catechize you need to memorize accurately the gospel you need to so have the gospel taught within the congregation i say congregation i can mean your home bible study group i can mean your youth group or your sunday school whatever it is you're, you're leading right you need to so teach the gospel simply accurately clearly that everybody in the group shares the common belief the common understanding It's why the Reformers and the Protestants wrote catechisms. All the denominations had catechisms. The two that you most commonly hear of are the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Anglican Prayer Book Catechism. The questions and answers that they taught the young people, as it was aimed at, to to learn off by heart and to recite off by heart were what they considered to be of fundamental importance to have a unity within the Christian congregation. Now, we've given up memory work at all, which is pretty sad because we should be learning our Bible verses off by heart, but not only have we given up memory work, we've given up those kinds of catechisms by and large. But yet, those catechisms partly got left behind because the complexities of the language. I read a, a quote from Jim Packer the other day, which I think had about 12 lines in it, all in one sentence. It was magnificent. It was directly from the Shorter Catechism. Those Presbyterians, they know how to give long sentences. It was terrific. It was a great sentence once I'd read it four or five times. Uh, That's one of the problems, just the sheer language of 17th century. But the other problem was it addressed 17th century issues. And so a lot of the Anglican Catechism is about the sacraments. And you can go, well, why are we teaching so much about the sacraments to young people and young Christians? And the answer was because the the gospel, the Reformation, was fought out in England over the subject of the sacraments. It was for the understanding of the Lord's Supper that Cranmer went to the stake. That was the presenting issue of his day. (laughs) He understood justification by faith alone was undermined by the Catholic view of the sacraments. So he went to stake for the sacraments because of justification by faith alone. They hardly ever martyr you for what you believe in. It's nearly always a presenting issue related. It's like Paul. He had to fight on the subject of circumcision. He says in the end of Galatians, circumcision is neither here nor there. It doesn't matter whether you are. It doesn't matter whether you aren't. But once you start saying you've got to be circumcised, it undermines justification by faith alone. So he argues about circumcision even though he thinks it's a nothing. Now, likewise, the sacraments are that kind of 17th century, 16th century argument which when you try and teach in the 21st century doesn't seem to make all that much sense as to why that would be so important. What Two Ways to Live is about is that it's a catechism. It's designed to be learnt off by heart. It's a teaching and a training of Christian people in the gospel understanding. But it is aimed not to be An expression of 20th century, for it was written in the 20th century, or 21st century arguments and fights, it's really not about our current fights, but it's about a careful analysis of the content of the gospel found in the Acts presentations of the gospel and in the epistles reflections upon the gospel, rather than in the gospels descriptions of the gospel, remembering that the gospel is... Before the epoch we live in, before the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it's still preparing. John the Baptist is an Old Testament character who happens to be found in the New Testament. We're dealing after that. When the apostles went out and preached the gospel, what did they say? And when they wrote about it to other Christians later on, how did they understand it? From those two pools, we've come to a discernment of what the gospel is. So It's training the congregation in this understanding of the gospel. Secondly, the pastors need to be involved in preaching the gospel, which requires you to move. And in requiring you to move, I am now going to move in hope that I can do this high-tech stuff. That there we go. Let's see what happens. Uh, The blanks are still blank. And the next blank, there we go. You see, in life you move from unknowing incompetency. You can't do it and you don't know you can't do it. That's where we start in life, which is a good place to start, isn't it? I don't need that one. And you then move to a second place, which is knowing incompetency. I know that on this kind of technology I am incompetent. I I know that. But you then can move to a third level in life, and hopefully you will, of knowing competency. So you actually learn what you've got to do well enough that you become competent in the doing of it, which then leads you to the fourth level. What's coming left? What is left? Once you knowingly understand how to do something and can do it, what more could you ask for? Well, there is something much more important to do. That is unknowing competency. That's when you just do it and you don't even know how to do it anymore. You remember driving the car when you first got your licence, how you were concentrating all the time? And after a few years of driving, you arrive at your destination and you're not even sure which gear you travelled in. I mean, you just did it. You just It just happens, right? Uh, sometimes directions like that too. You know, you drive out of the place and you arrive... And you don't remember having seen any of the places, you just know the route. Sometimes I'm so unknowing in my competency, I've arrived at the wrong place. Because I just wasn't thinking about where I was going, because I didn't drop back. Now, if you are going to teach and train people, if you're going to set the example of gospel preaching, you need to reach unknowing competency. That you just, by nature, preach the gospel, anytime, anywhere, without But if you're going to train other people, in order to train them, you actually have to do something more. You have to reverse back down to knowing competency. Because when you just do it by nature, you can't explain it to anybody else as to what to do. So you actually have to backtrack to how did I do that so that I can now analyse and explain to you how to do that. Ever taught a little boy how to play cricket? Sorry if you haven't and you don't like cricket and the rest of it, I'm really sorry for you. Uh, but cricket is a very unnatural game. It's a, nearly all the actions in cricket are unnatural. Uh, and so when you try and teach a little boy how to play cricket, you've got to tell him to stop being natural. He's, he's got to learn. See, he doesn't know he's incompetent. You've got to teach him that he's, he's never going to... A crossbat shot is not going to play cricket. You've got to hold your bat vertically. And so it takes time to train him. But to do that, if you're a cricketer, is very difficult because you've forgotten how you came to understand the shots yourself. And you have to go back to what Dad taught me so as to be able to remember how to teach him to do those basic unnatural shots in order to develop. But of course, the great cricketers, they always live in unknowing competency. They just do it. It's just second nature to them. But the great coaches, that's a different thing. They know how to do it so as to be able to teach it. So you need to go through all those processes and come back. Now, I don't know where you are in the process of learning how to be an evangelist, and learning how to train other people in evangelism. I don't know whether you're down in unknowing incompetency or you've, and we've just opened your eyes to something and you've moved up one notch already, or whether you are knowingly incompetent, or whether you actually can do it, but you have to stop and think about it all the time, or whether it's just come second nature to you. But you've got to get to this yellow line. You've got to go back, that step. During college is the time. You need to reach the final step and help others to do it too in order to prepare yourself for the ministry. You see, it's those who teach others who will always know how to do it. The medicos understand this. When you're being trained as a doctor, they do three things. One, you, you, you watch one operation. Secondly, you do the operation. Thirdly, you teach another doctor how to do the operation. Because only when you've taught it you will always know how to do it. As long as you're only doing, you don't know how to do it ultimately, just not second nature. So learning how to teach other people to evangelise is a critical step for you to become good evangelists, to say nothing of the responsibility of leading and uniting the congregation that you've been appointed to. So what do we have in Two Ways to Live? sheet there. What do we have in Two Ways to Live? I'm going to have to go very quickly now. First and foremost, an exegetically and theologically accurate summary of the gospel. That's in part what these six lectures are about, so I'll move on to the theology of the gospel expressed accurately in modern English without distracting connotations. So we don't talk about creation, we talk about being made, because as soon as you mention creation... People immediately ask you questions about evolution, which is just going to distract you from the gospel. So we talk about being made, which is exactly the same meaning of the word. Well, You won't find in Two Ways to Live any reference to sin, because people think of sex. We don't refer to faith because people think of superstition. We don't use repentance because no one knows what it means. Thirdly, a simple, memorable, flexible teaching aid. That's what it's about. That's why that little slip that Candy showed me, you see, it's flexible. It can be used in lots of different ways. It is very simple, annoyingly simple, but that's because it's memorable, which is critical for a catechism. It needs to be memorable, and it's a teaching aid. It controls the conversation as you teach other people the gospel. That is verbal, because the gospel is verbal. It is the word of God, so it's got to be verbal, but it is also visual, because people need to see and understand what it is you're talking about, though you'll notice we avoid the idolatry by having absolute crass stick figures. Uh, they're the only ones I can draw, and even those, I'm not really good at it. Uh, knowing incompetency is my middle name. And th- more, also, it is kinesthetic. That is, a key way of getting people to remember things is music, sing along, Another way is getting people to do things physically. So it's easier to teach when you give people words, visuals, and get them to actually do things, especially if they're of the male persuasion. Uh, The Department of Education would understand that. And it can be used in evangelism, but it also can be used in teaching Christians the gospel. Thirdly, Fourthly, it's a course that over a couple of months not only teaches but also trains in evangelism. Giving the trainee experience in the activity. So you see, we have these teaching programs that are here, uh, the Leaders' Manual and the the Trainees' Manual, which is designed over a six-, seven-week program to get people out evangelising, which is terrifying for people before they start. And so we try and raise their confidence, enabling novices to speak the gospel and to know how to lead someone to Christ. Notice it's not about cold turkey evangelism, it's not about walk-up evangelism. That's one commonly used way of training people, but it's not the only way in which to train people and it's not the strategy for evangelism that we're talking of, nor is it the goal of the course. We try to create a sense of security and safety to enable shy and diffident people to be able to talk the gospel with their neighbours and their friends mind you, it's those who are willing to evangelise on the street who see their friends converted because those who are willing to speak publicly will speak privately, whereas those who are not willing to speak publicly don't know what to say privately. Some people I know have been converted on the streets. Not many, but some. But I've seen many, many people converted by those who do speak on the streets. And I rarely see people converted by those who are unwilling to speak up on the streets. It's a training mechanism. There are other training mechanisms. Fifthly, it's a transferable course that not only trains in the gospel but also teaches you how to train others. A transferable concept, pick it up from Campus Crusade, it's a very wonderful concept. So the way you train people is the way in which they will train people. So this course has this terrific ongoing potential of training trainers all the time. And sixthly, it's a worldwide course that is easily taken elsewhere. Now, no course is perfect. But before you write your own, you need to look at the others at depths and work out whether putting your own out of the market is worth doing. It may be. But it's not much help to your congregation if you're the only place that ever uses your own course. Because <laughs> as soon as they leave your church, They've got to learn a new course. They've got to learn a new way of doing it. There's a certain sense in which you need to actually work in the commonality of Christians. It's like building your own Bible translation. I am driven mad by the Bible translations. I would love to have the Philip Jensen Bible translation. But who's going to use it? There's no use having a Bible translation that only one church uses. That's ridiculous. The commonality of acceptance of the Bible translation is important. But it's one of the problems with the Holman translation, isn't it? Not a bad translation, but only a scattering of churches using it. Well, that's the strength of the NIV. Not a really good translation, but everybody uses it. There's a problem that we have. Two ways to live. It's worldwide now. So, the second topic is introducing what these six talks are going to be about, which we will move uh, quickly here. We must turn our attention to the first claim that I just made about two ways to live. That is, it's an exegetically and theologically accurate summary of the gospel. Because if we're going to teach it to people, if we're going to teach them to learn it off by heart, then it really is important that it is accurate and right. If we're going to unite the congregation in a common mind, then it must be the gospel. And so therefore, the method, the kind of summary we have must be accurate to the gospel or we're not doing a right thing by them. I may say, that is the big problem with the choice of songs that people have. The song that people sing week by week in church is what they believe because it's taught to them by heart. You know, you can think about it. If I started up a song there, most of you could finish the song. Because the words are in your mind, you see. But the trouble is, if those words aren't absolutely accurate to the gospel, you've just mistaught your congregation. Good song, brilliant. A bad song, dreadful. There's, there's the key thing people don't seem to grasp about the issue of Christian music. Uh, the heretics have always grasped it. Arius uh, conveyed his, his heresy through songs. Uh, the Tractarians did exactly the same. Uh, raising up the whole singing of uh, hymns from the medieval period so as to undo the Reformation. Uh, every, every heretic group understands it, just the Orthodox have difficulty with it. Anyway, we're going to make sure this is right. Well then, if that is the case, let me uh, see, if that is the case, what are these, these lectures about three things? Firstly, we need to evaluate carefully because we're teaching it. Secondly, pastors need as teachers and trainers to understand it in greater depth than what you have on the piece of paper. Any idiot can make something complicated. You actually have to understand something in depth to make it simple. And so these kinds of lectures are the background lectures to help you see the theological thinking and the exegetical thinking that goes behind this simple little six steps and six pages. You need to have this to actually teach your congregations properly. Thirdly, this presentation is not six propositions, but one gospel. It's important to know how each proposition connects to the others, how each builds upon the others, how they relate to alternative gospel presentations, or alternative gospels, not that there is another one, how they interact with non-Christian worldview, and how they express our biblical theology. None of that are you going to get from the simple sheet of six pictures. That's what these lectures are about. That's the theological background, the apologetic background, the evangelistic background to these six pictures. This is, And how the six pictures hang together, which is really important, especially in the first two. And this is now a college project for me. That is ministry, and it should be for you, ministry is so busy... You don't have all that much time to stop and think about what you're doing. College is the time that gives you the opportunity to stop and think, understand and modify your behaviour and your thinking. The gospel is basic to everything. If you don't get it straight before you left college, I'm sorry, there's not much hope down the track that it will straighten you up. Pastoral ministry, I've only done 40 odd years of it, is terrific pressure to turn away from the gospel. That's what it is. Day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, you are being pressured to turn away from the gospel. If you're not 100% clear by the time you walk outside of more college, it's unlikely you ever will be clear. And if you're not clear, the congregation is confused. Or worse. So now's the time to get there. Well, enough. The topic today is the first of the boxes. That's creation. Now, First, obvious question to ask is why do you start with creation in a gospel presentation? Most gospel presentations do not start in creation. Here are three quick reasons. Firstly, the basis of the whole gospel and the basic descriptor of God is creation. Christians assume it, as did the first century Jews. And because we assume it, we don't see its implications. Non-Christians assume it or believe it, often distort it, frequently suppress it through wickedness, Romans 1, and then ultimately deny it. And some clever ones, like Peter Singer, the bioethicist from Princeton University and the atheist, he sees the implications It is astonishing that I've got Christian friends who do not understand the implications of creation and atheistic writers who not only see the implications but fight against the tooth and nail because of the implications that Christians can't see. So we're going to evangelise non-Christians. We're going to think how non-Christians think. But there's a second reason. The logic of creation is essential to understand because without creation understood properly... Sin does not make sense. More of that next week. And judgment seems actually unjust. And without sin and judgment in place, the atonement and the resurrection does not make any sense. And so the propriety of repentance and faith, the rightness of giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, is obscene. So in logic, if you're going to actually get people to give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ... The place at which they depart from you is in creation. <laughs> Until you've got that sorted out, telling people Jesus is the answer, their their response is, "Oh, great! What's the question?" He says, "Oh, well, Jesus died for your sins. Fantastic. So, what does it mean? If I don't if I don't understand sin, I will not understand his death, and I cannot understand sin if I don't understand creation. That's the, one of the big mistakes we make because then we define sin." in all the wrong ways. Next week, it's about sin. And I am totally incompetent on things like uh, electronic gizmos. But let me tell you, on the subject of sin, I've had more practice than any of you in this room. Because I've been working at it for 70 years. I know sin. You want to know about sin? I'm your man, I can tell you. And I will next week. N- Third reason is, the New Testament Gospel presents creation... When it's preaching to the pagans, that is the non-Jews, not just the non, uh, not just the God-fearing Gentiles, the God-fearing Gentiles, and the Jews. He doesn't bother explaining creation to. But when Paul approaches the Gentiles who do not, uh, who are pagans, out and out non-non uh, theists at all, he always talks of creation. That's why we've included it. So in Lystra in Acts 14, in Athens in Acts 17, in the discussion of the gospel for all people in 1 Timothy 2 or in Romans 1, it all points to the existing belief and the cognitive dissidence of not believing in the creation. I'm going to read to you from Acts 14. Men, why are you doing this? Bowing down and sacrificing to him. We too are only men. Human like you, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. When preaching to out-and-out unbiblical, non-biblical pagans, what does he appeal to? Creation. Again, Acts chapter 17 on the hill of uh, uh, Areopagus. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he turned them the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this. So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. His appeal, face to face with the idolatry of Athens and the intelligentsia of the Areopagus, his appeal, the God of creation. That's where it starts. In Acts 19, where he's dealing with the Ephesians, where they've just, uh, you know, the, the riot's about to happen. These are people who have they have burnt all their, their idolatry and their ma- magic and their witchcraft and the like. That's a very pagan environment, although he does evangelise in the synagogue in Ephesians, so there is God-fearing and Jews there. But when the silversmiths complain, they say in Acts 19.27, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There is the gospel message that they hear Paul saying, which is not all that far from what we know he was saying. Or again, if you remember in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians one nine, he describing the conversion of the Thessalonians and says, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yes, we've got to preach Jesus. But the Jesus we preach is the one who called his Father his God. And Jesus is the creator as his Father is the creator. We preach the creator. That's whom we're preaching. Now, let's remind ourselves of the biblical data about creation. Now, my friends... It's coming about 4 o'clock, and I know one of our friends has to leave at 4 o'clock. I'm about to go into the biblical uh, uh, data for this, but I'm going to take a one-minute break. I'm going to finish at 4.30, if I keep speaking quickly enough, and 4.30 is Q&A, but we'll take another minute break then for those who don't want a Q&A and who need to get away and the like and who want to face the heat of the outside to... Uh, to do so and then we'll go into Q&A and we certainly will be out of here by 5 o'clock. It depends on how many questions you ask as to how long we go from there but uh, stumps definitely will be called at 5. Okay? I'm pressing on. Any other people need to leave at this point? This is the moment to do it. We're not drawing attention to you. We're not noticing (laughs) but Wendy's at the corner taking your name. Uh, No, he is. uh... All right? Now, the biblical data of creation, I'm sorry, but it's all over the Bible. It's very hard to define it. You see, Genesis 1 and 2, obviously. The end of Job, 38 to 41. But the Psalms, there's so many Psalms that are creation Psalms. Psalm 8, about the the pondering about the place of man in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 104 is a long Psalm all about creation, as you'll find in Psalm 29. Psalm 33. I mean, I'll give you some numbers you can look up if you doubt doubts about creation 33, 65, 115, 135, 136, 146. They're all creation Psalms. The, the Bible is full of this sense of creation. Secondly, as the Creator, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be giving you some overheads to just help you follow what I'm saying and keep you awake. There we go. Secondly, He is the sustainer of everything. It's not deism, it's theism that the Bible teaches. And so in Psalm 104, he he feeds us. He feeds the cattle, he feeds the humans. It's not just that he created the hills, he goes on looking after the hills. It's not just that he created the cattle, he goes on feeding the cattle. He sustains us. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, I'm going to start opening up my Bible to read some of these things for us. Hebrews 1.3 which is about the Lord Jesus Christ, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, if you remember. And so he sustains everything. The next one, though, is that he frequently... Uh, he, he frequently... Um, you find the Bible data as an attack on idolatry. So Jeremiah 11, uh, 10, Jeremiah 10, verses 11 to 16, contrasts the God as the creator and the idols who were created. They don't make anything. They don't even make themselves. He made everything. And so they are weak and puny. He is great and powerful. So there's lots of Bible references to God as creator in contrast to the idols. Next you'll find that he is also, it's used in an argument of salvation. Because he is the creator of all, he is therefore the Lord of all. The Lord of Jew and of Gentile. Isaiah 44 and 45 are terrific passages about the nations. Cyrus, you see, is the Christ. How could Cyrus be the Christ? Well, because God is the creator of Cyrus. You don't argue with me, he says. The potter and the clay. The clay doesn't argue with the potter. You know that passage in Isaiah 45, Isaiah 44? The Lord, he is the one and only who has created everything. The good and the bad, he has created it all. It says, the wealth and the and the woe, it's all created by him. In fact, that whole section of Isaiah from 44, 42, uh, 50, 55, 66, the creation of uh, uh, the creator as the saviour of the world is a great theme for the second half or the last third of Isaiah. Uh, Because he's the creator of the whole world, which is the point of 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and mankind. And that's why I am a preacher to the Gentiles, he says. It's 1 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 through to 7. Or Romans 3, where Paul will say, is God only the God of the Jews? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? How does he know he's the God of the Gentiles? Well, because he's the creator of all. That's how he knows. But so... You can trust the creator. You can trust God as the creator. So he's known as the creator. Uh, what are you supposed to do in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. I've forgotten whether I did or not, but you should. Uh, Isaiah forty twenty eight calls him the creator. Romans 1, 20 points to him as the creator and can be known as that. 1 Peter chapter 4.19, you trust yourself to the faithful creator. So one of the ways of talking about God is the creator. It's a a fundamental bedrock understanding of God because it's the first way. You don't start off knowing God as father. You come to know God as father through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. But you start off knowing God as the creator. That's how he's initially revealed to you as to what it is. And so the Lord, as Matthew says, is the Lord of heaven and earth. See, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And indeed, that's Matthew eleven twenty five. And later, of course, Jesus in Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he's indeed called in Acts ten thirty six. Jesus is the Lord of all. So part of the argument of the creator is the universality that comes from him creating everything. And sixthly, he is the creator, is known by everyone. This is the argument of Romans 1.18. Uh, it's also what Paul is appealing to in Acts 17 on Areopagus. It's the argument of Ecclesiastes 3. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. not that he will understand it from the beginning to the end, but we all know of the creator. Everyone knows that there is a God who made all things just from the world around about us. we know it now it 's important friends to understand this. I first went out uh, uh, sharing the gospel in the streets many, many years ago at the uh, behest of a man from campus Crusade, a lovely Christian American friend who worked with me at New South Wales University a long time ago and uh, he showed me how to go around just talking to students about the gospel. And there was a, I, I said, well, you can take me out. And he did. And he took me out to a bloke who was asleep or reading a book just under my office window. And he rolled up to him and said, can we talk to you? I, you know, I'm Gary, I, this is Philip. Can we, we Christians, can we talk to you about things? And the bloke said, sure, but close his book. He said, well, we want to talk about God. Oh, the man said, I'd like to find out about that. And he said, really, yes? He said, I've been just sitting here thinking, you know, I, I wonder about God. <laughs> well, we had prayed that God would lead us to someone, but I didn't believe in prayer that much, you know. I mean, this is... And if he really wanted to know, why didn't he put his head through my window and ask? I was on the first floor, it wasn't a very ground floor, it wasn't very hard to ask. He could have walked into the chaplaincy and asked, but no, he lay there outside waiting for my American friend to come and ask him. And so afterwards I said to Gary, I said... To, You just approached him and said, I want to talk to you about God. How do you know that he believed in God? Why didn't you think he was an atheist? And Gary said, that's the trouble with you, Philip. You don't believe your Bible. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the Bible says they all know that there is God. You always approach people on the basis that they don't know there's God. When the Bible tells you, they all do. So you should always start on the grounds that they do until they tell you they don't. Then you know they're suppressing the truth because actually they do. Uh, It's very liberating once you start taking the Bible seriously. (laughs) Humiliating when you're the chaplain and being taught how to do it, but there you go. (laughs) You see, people know it, but they deny it. Now, that's about sin. Next week, know all about it. But they know it. However, they don't know very much. They only know God is there and he's powerful because they should seek and search after him, but they don't because of sin. It's only by faith that we know the creator and creation properly according to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3. But everyone can know something and should seek after him. Acts 14, he's left testimony to you. Acts 17, even your poets talk about that we are his offspring. You see you should know about him and do something about it. However, what is startling is point number seven, the Creator turns out to be Christ. Uh, John chapter 1, the Word was God and the Word became flesh and we beheld his glory. See, Psalm 33 verse 6 had told us that God created the world by his Word. Indeed, it's just reflecting upon what Genesis 1 is saying. And yet it's only in Christ that we discover that the Word was the man, that the word became flesh, that the word was God the Son. You, You don't actually get taught the Trinity until you move into the New Testament. It's there, and when you've been taught it, you can look back and see it, but if you start at the beginning and work your way through, you don't know it. This is even true of the Holy Spirit. The hand of the Lord, does that mean that the Lord has a hand? The spirit of the Lord, does that mean he has a spirit? Well, the answer is no and yes. Uh, and the, this is something that you learn with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you've learned it, you can see it in the Old Testament, but you don't see it in the Old Testament when you just start at the first page and work your way through. And so what is startling to us in the end is that Jesus actually is the one through whom, for whom, and by whom everything has been created. Colossians chapter one verse sixteen and seventeen following. Or well, Hebrews chapter one, verse ten, which quotes Psalm 102. Psalm 102 is You, Yahweh, have laid the foundations of the world. And Hebrews says, To which angel did God ever say, You, Yahweh, have found and so it actually links Jesus with Yahweh in Hebrews one, ten to twelve and Psalm hundred and two. I've got the numbers of the verses wrong, but it's a good psalm. Read a lot of it. it. Won't do you any harm at all. However, the Trinity issue is important to grasp. See, the Father is the Creator, and the Son is the Creator. Is the Holy Spirit seen as the Creator? Well, he 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 hovers over the the waters, over the chaos in Genesis one two, but no, it doesn't actually speak of the. Holy Spirit being the creator anywhere particularly. Job 26:13 possibly, but it's poetic. It's much less the spirit's work to be the creator, though I would never want to say the Holy Spirit did not be involved in the creation. Anyway, it doesn't matter to us, you see, because the Trinity is the end point of theological reflection, not the beginning creation and creator is the beginning of theological reflection. Now I'm afraid that many of our theologians, not of course our blessed beloved ones here at this college, but around the world, have got it all back to front. That's because they're not evangelists. Uh, They're philosophers, you see, and they want to start off with the Trinity. But the Trinity is the end point. That's what you discover at the end of the gospel. That's not what you discover at the beginning of the gospel. It starts with God as creator you will learn more about the creator down the track. But it starts at the creator. And that's the departure point for the Christian and the non-Christian. It's right back there at the creation and the creator. So, two ways to live summarises, I'm up to point C now, key gospel concepts of creation with these words. That is, it's written somewhere, isn't it? I've got it here. I didn't put it on the screen for you. God is the loving ruler of the world. I think you'll get it in that uh, one sheet one, won't you? This one. God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. And uses Revelation 4.11 down that track. Now, why are these the kind of key gospel concepts of creation that we want to teach our people And we want to share with non-Christians. Well, remember, brothers and sisters, it's a summary. And as a summary, it leaves out things. By definition, it does. And you can always add more things into a summary. That's easy. Any idiot can do that. What's really hard is getting back down to the bare bones that you're going to teach. That's a much harder thing. And so why these bits are the ones we remember. Well, because you need these bits later on in the Gospel presentation because these bits reflect what the New Testament uses when the Gospel is preached in Acts 14 and Acts 17 and Romans 1. It flows from looking at the New Testament that we came to think these are the things of creation that we need to express for people, for them to understand the basic fundamental descriptor of God, that is, the creator. And so we're explaining who God is in biblical terms, the ruler who made it all, and we're explaining our created relationship with God because the gospel is about what God has done to us, with us, for us, Our place in creation is a special place in creation. So, turning to Genesis chapter 1, you see what the chapter is teaching us about creation over the next few points, the Genesis account. Now, I'm not going to exegete the chapter verse by verse. You need to do that. I'm doing summaries here. But we need to see how two ways to live actually reflects the teaching of Genesis 1, to make sure that we're doing the thing properly and to deepen our understanding. It starts with God. In the beginning, God. Now, Mr. Wenham, who writes a very useful commentary on the Word series. There he is, looking very bookish, I think some years ago. (laughs) Mr. Wenham says, God is not an entity that can be conceived of apart from his works. It's a very good commentary. I don't know if you've actually used it, but it's the Word series commentary. It's very useful. You see, defining the unique is impossible. If it's a one-off, it can't be defined, it can only be described. The creator is the primary descriptor, description, describing of God. But God is not. For God as a God is not unique. The word God means a supernatural ruler. There's lots of God's. Uh, In one sense, the New Testament, the Bible is polytheistic. Uh, Think of Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Later in the same passage, he said, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. There are gods, you see, other than the creator. In fact, the devil, he is called the god of this world. He is supernatural and he exists and he's a ruler of the world. He's a God. Indeed, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul acknowledges many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus. That's not a kind of postmodern kind of view. For us, he's God, but he's not for you. He's saying, for our point of view, what we teach is that he is the God of gods which Deuteronomy ten seventeen calls him, and Psalm 136, verse 2. Psalm 136, verse 2, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. He is the God of gods. It's not saying he's the God and there are no other gods. That's, that's how we would like it said, but that's not actually what the Bible says. So you've got to stick with the Bible rather than what we like. He's the God of gods. Yahweh is his name, and I'm really sorry our translators keep using the, the Lord. I know Yahweh's the wrong pronunciation. I know there's a problem of blaspheming his name. I know those problems. But when you keep talking about the Lord in capital letters, you depersonalise God, which is one of the very fundamental things about God. He's personal. And so Yahweh is his name, like Marduk and Shemosha, the names, Kamosha the names of other gods. Yahweh is who he is. See, I'm a man. That's what I am. I am Philip, that's who I am. <laughs> that's a, a different thing. Well, what is? He's the creator, that's what he is. He's the creator. The God of gods is the creator of all things and his name is Yahweh. So secondly we turn to the meaning of created. In the beginning God created. Now the word bara means create, make a new thing. It, it's not simply make. It's it has the overtones of ex nihilo, made out of nothing. Though it's not always that. So in Psalm 148, verse 5, it, it, it sounds like that. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, it sounds like that. Revelation 4:11, it sounds like that. The word bara occurs three times in Genesis 1, as you'll notice. Uh, verse 1, he creates all things. Verse 21 is when he creates the living creatures. And verse 27, when he creates the man in his image. Are we supposed to see these are three special acts of creation in the running of the chapter? I don't know, but I draw it to your attention. BDB says of this word, in the qual, the shape, the fashion to create always a divine activity. It's not something that others do. Only God does in the Bible, this activity. Uh, the object of it is heaven and earth, mankind, the host of heavens, heavens heavens. Uh, Sometimes individual men, the smith and the waster, he creates Israel. But new conditions and new circumstances in particular he creates. He creates righteousness and salvation. He creates darkness and evil. He creates the fruit of lips. It's, It's the new thing which is God is involved in creation. Even his transformations, he creates a clean heart and a new heaven and a new earth. So in the context where it starts off in the beginning... And with the description of everything being created, the primary introduction of God, of whom he is talking, is the one God who's created everything, and therefore out of nothing. Thirdly, is creation by fiat. That's not a car. That's not an Italian either. It's actually by a proclamation. And God said, let there be, And there was. Psalm 33 verse 6. Psalm 148 verse 5. Reflect upon it. That is to create by your word is a real expression of power. I don't do anything. I just tell someone to do it and it's done. That's power. It's also of intention. It didn't just happen. He created it by his word. He said this is what I want. And therefore creation of rationality which lies at the basis of science which of course is why the Reformation in the 16th century led to the scientific revolution of the 18th century because people had come to understand the earth rationally rather than irrationally as had been seen in medieval mysticism. But it's also the creation of the other. That is, the world is not God. It's not part of God. He creates by fiat. He says, let this happen, let it come into being. And so... The word is an essential part of the creative act. The God who is the creator is not dumb and silent, but speaks as he lives. The the idols, they're dumb in both senses of the word. God's word expresses his mind, his character and his purpose. God's word is powerful and created. And therefore, you see, we're preparing the way for John chapter 1. And we're preparing the way for... Us being in the image of God. The problem of religious language is answered by us being in the image of the God who speaks. In fact, the problem of epistopology is answered by the fact that we are created in the image of God, the God who speaks in creation. Whole ranges of philosophical issues are dealt with, we're not going to now. May I say though that evolution is an irrelevance to us. For the method of creation was by fiat. That's the method we're taught. That's the one we've got to stick for. Atheists use evolution just as Christians use intelligent design, but neither of them are actually proving their point. The, the, the whole argument is a is a stupid argument. Because really the atheist wants no God and we want God and so we use and they use but neither argument is going to win the day at the end of it. The atheist is convinced by evolution, the, the theist is convinced by intelligent design. Pretty well where it finishes. However, there is an example of a difference. Things. Anthony Flew, who in my days here in college was a great pain in the neck, because he was the leading atheist. He was the Richard Dawkins of his day. But in 2010, Anthony Flew produced a book called "There Is a God." He was the the leading atheist of the world. He says, "I now believe there is a God. I now think that the evidence." does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. Not really, though. It was also because of his philosophical discussions that he went back into. However, it didn't lead him to become a Christian. It didn't lead him to theism. It led him to deism. Not the personal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he would not look at revelation. He was a philosopher who looked at science you will know that there is a God. But you don't know anything more than that. Even if you could persuade someone that far, he subsequently died. Fourthly, we need to understand the meaning of good. And God saw that it was good. Now, it's a difficult word to define, as any dictionary will show you. It's often much, much more than an exclamation of approval. Oh, that's good. Within creation... It is the creator who expresses his approval, which may mean the thing he has created is intrinsically good and not evil. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 kind of indicates that. But it really is the thing he has created meets his intentions, meets his purpose. But then that opens up for us the famous euthyphro false dichotomy. Euthyphro is a discussion between Socrates and, uh, and Euthyphro. Hands up those who know about the Euthyphro. Oh, dear, dear. Okay. Well, the Platonic dialogues are Socrates having fights with his friends, and Euthyphro is one of his friends. And it's a famous argument. It comes up all the time. In fact, I read it on a website just uh, yesterday uh, that you'll find uh, somebody, an atheist, ran it up again. Uh, what it says in the original is, is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? Now, because atheists today don't believe in piety, they've changed it to, is what is morally good commanded by God because it's morally good, or is it morally good because it's commanded by God? See the the alternatives? If you say the first one, then you say, well, it's not actually good, right, it's sorry, if you say the first one, it's morally good uh, because it is morally good, then there is something greater than God. There is moral goodness to which God is answerable. If you say the second one, no, it's only good because God says it's good, well, then it's arbitrary. It's not really good, it's just God's approval. Now, the point is, of course, it's a false dichotomy. Don't be conned by Socrates. Uh, the character of the good God who creates is the formation of what is good. And the meaning of good is that it suits God, the good God's purposes and intentions. Please note that the Bible, in saying that it was good, it was good, it was very good, tov me on, it's not perfect. For man is placed in the world in order to subdue it. Verse 28. So my friend Mr. Wenham, he says on this word good, I thought it was a useful quote. The Hebrew adjective has a broad range of meaning, as it uh, broad range as does the English term. Primarily, it draws attention to an object's quality of fitness for its purpose. But the Hebrew term, as used by the Israelites, is more closely related to the mind and opinion of God than the English word. God is preeminently the one who is good, and His goodness is reflected in His works. page 18 of the commentary, but you'll find it on good. This gives us a greater sense of the objective goodness than it's our subjective approval. So there's an inherent materialism in the Bible. Evil is not found in the matter itself. 1 Timothy 4 verses 3 to 4, these things have been created to be received with thanksgiving. Who have been created by God for good. Uh, I am a fierce uh, total uh, abstainer from all alcohol and I wish more people were too. I think it's the drug of Australians, it's the drug of our politicians, it's rotted our society and our community and I think people who don't know how dreadful alcohol is have not lived in the real world at all as they see one in uh, five Australians being seriously detrimentally hurt by alcohol. I am a great anti-grog man. Just thought I'd run that up. Grog is a good thing created by God for man. God made wine to make glad the heart of man. And indeed, King Lemuel is told to give strong drink to those who are in need. Grog is great when it's used for the right purposes, which I don't think any Australians do. But it's a great thing. The material substance itself is not bad. What people do with it is dreadful. Now, I put alcohol there, but actually heroin is exactly the same. Heroin is one of the best palliative care medicines that have ever been invented. It's a wonderful substance. But you go shooting it up in your arm for enjoyment, it's a dreadful tyranny and does great damage to people. But the substance itself is not the problem, it's what we do with it is the problem. You understand? The importance of the creation doctrine, you've got to hold firm to what the Bible says. It's for God's purpose. God is even very good but very good it may be we in verse 28 have to subdue it. So there is something that God has not done for creation. It's fulfilled his purpose but his purpose involves humans subduing the creation. So good does not equal perfect. There's something else involved. We're not told what it is but it's there. Fifthly, into this context of creation comes the critical piece of information for us that we are created in God's image. The famous, uh, we had a famous UK scholar come out when I was in Moore College and we went down to St Andrew's Hall every lunchtime for five, day, for five days, one-hour lectures in which he went through the Imago Day, telling us what the image of God meant. And he went through every known kind of exposition of what it meant, one after another. Day after day, we heard what other people said and why they were wrong, and this one said and why it was wrong, and this one said and why it was wrong. Came to Friday, and we thought, now at last we're going to hear what he actually believes. And on Friday, he was still going through what this one said and why it was wrong, what this one said. And at the end of the lecture, he said, Look, I've run out of time, so I'll, I can't tell you what I think. <laughs> Greatest waste of my lunch times I've <laughs> ever known. Broughton Knox laughed when I came back and reported this to him. He said, Oh, you're yeah, the English theologians, they're always like that. <laughs> Which is a very Australian rudeness and not quite true either. Let Us Create has a couple of things. Firstly, it's deliberative. God intended specifically to do this. We don't know what the us is, whether it's the royal plural, uh, just being grammatical. Whether it's Trinitarian, you're not told. We read back from the New Testament into it the Trinitarian, but in itself you couldn't know that. But the image of God, the context is apexegetical. It explains to you. I don't know why you need five lectures. You just need to read your Bible. Verse 26 tells you. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and then let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's what it is about being in dominion. We are to the world as God is to the world. He is in dominion over all things and he appoints us in dominion under him. Man turns into plural here because we are to have dominion. So man the singular is a humanity rather than man. And like God towards other creatures, we are to be. So verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. So the, the second half of verse 26 must be explanation of what is being said to you at the first half of 26 and the conclusion of verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of he created him. Male and female he created them. Sexual polarity as well as plurality is part of humanity. It's part of it, and you can't get away from it. This is the way we've been created. And why? Verse twenty eight and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sexual polarity is for multiplication within one humanity. We are to multiply. He doesn't create lots of humanities. He creates one humanity with a sexual polarity within it so that we will multiply more and more humans as one humanity. And so we are to fill the earth and to subdue it. There is the task. And rule over it in dominion under his authority. Herein lies our purpose and meaning. And from that comes our morality and our values or virtues. This, my friend, resolves the naturalistic fallacy. The naturalistic fallacy is to say that is means ought. And it's a real problem for the atheist. Big problem. Uh, there is a jug of water. Therefore, I ought to throw it over candy. That's a logical... All those in agreement? Yeah, I thought so. You've got some friends over there. Uh, yeah. I mean... There is a jug of water, therefore, there is a jug of water. <laughs> doesn't say any more than that. It can't mean any more than that. However, when you've been created for a purpose, then it has a purpose. There is a jug of water there for you, Philip, to keep drinking so that your throat doesn't burn out. So make sure you use it to drink from it. Right? It's because of its purpose in creation by a creator, that we have any oughtness that follows from it. What we don't see yet from Genesis 1, and need to be careful, is that the creation is more than what you've just got in Genesis 1 and 2. That is, the psalmist in Psalm 8, you see, he's pondering this creation. What is man that you've made him? Little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honour. What's it about? It doesn't make sense. It's not until you come to Hebrews 2, verse 5 and following that it makes sense when you see Jesus. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now you have crowned him with with glory and honour because he has tasted death for everyone. Then you finally see man come into the position for which man was created. Only then. And so Jesus in Colossians 1 is the image of the invisible God, through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were created. But he is the image. Uh, John one fourteen. you say, he is the word. Hebrews to it, 4 It's Now you start to see what man was created to be. We were created to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be united with him. But what we do see in the background is the background to our sinfulness. See, from Genesis 1 and 2, from just the idea of creation, leave aside Jesus for a moment or two. We'll get to him, page 3, page 4, but 4 or 5. But at the moment you only look at creation, what you do see is the background to our sinfulness and the sovereignty of God. That's what you see. And without it, you will not understand the sinfulness. You see it that clearly in the alternatives pantheism, animism, animists, astrologers, the spiritual people, the Hindus and the Buddhists who uh, see the creation as a maya, as a deception and not right. Agnosticism, which is really... Agnosticism is uh, really cognitive dissonance. Sorry I'm going a little too long, friends. The trouble of starting late and being timed. See, cognitive dissonance is the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs and attitudes especially as relating to behavioural decisions and attitude change. So I believe this and I believe that, but they're contradictory to each other. That creates terrible tension within people. That's where agnostics live, you see. In Romans 1.18 and 20, they know that God is there, but they don't want God running their lives. But they, they want him to be God when they pray because they've got problems, but they don't want to actually give thanks to him afterwards. And so they live in this tension which is really important for evangelism we have to exploit their cognitive dissonance. That's what Paul is saying. You believe in the God, look. And your poets say it, yes. But you're not doing it. How come? You rather are worshipping idols. Doesn't make sense. You who claim to be wise are fools. However, of course, the clearest antagonist in our community today and the ones with whom we part company most uh, are the atheists. Uh, it's not an argument about evolution versus creation, it's an argument about accidentalism as opposed to intentionality. Is the universe an accident or was the universe intentionally made? That's, that's where the fight is at. And you fight about evolution and you fight about uh, uh, intelligent design, you're not actually fighting what the fight's about. <laughs> you're not about accident. Let me show it to you. You see, I've explored all this in a series of uh, sermons I gave in the cathedral back in uh, 2014 and you can get them, uh, it's the Bible's challenge to a dead world, they're coming up on the uh, website philipjensen.com at the moment I think and there's not coming up, sorry? On Facebook they're coming up but you can go to that website as well Uh, but they're coming up on Facebook bit by bit, Uh, there's about 20 or so sermons on this subject but what I did was read up some of the atheists themselves. And so let me finish with giving you some of them before I hit Revelation 4.11. See, Professor Joel Marks, I wrote up him in an article about his conversion. He wasn't converted from atheism to Christianity. He was converted from uh, Kantianism to utilitarianism. And his conversion was terrible. He said, I was a moral fool. And he goes on, my shocking epiphany that the religious fundamentalists are correct. Without God, there is no morality. That's what the Bible says. That's why he's appalled. He's he's wound up saying the same things the Bible says. He hates it, but yet that's the logical truth of his own philosophical position. Or well, Thomas Nagel's one I enjoy. He's a professor at uh, New York University. What does it all mean? He writes. But what's the point of being alive at all? He says. Actually, there's no point. It wouldn't matter if I didn't exist at all, or if I didn't care about anything but I do see the cognitive dissonance. That's all there is to it. And then he goes on to say, if life is not real, life is not earnest, and the grave is its goal, perhaps it's ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. On the other hand, if we can't help taking ourselves so seriously, perhaps we just have to put up with being ridiculous. Life may not only be meaningless, but absurd. That's what the atheists believe, who actually think it out properly, you see. These are not the cyberspace atheists who have arguments on links, right? They're just a different different animal altogether. Professor Richard Dawkins, we reach out in our search for meaning until we suddenly realise it is we who actually provide the purpose in the universe, which otherwise would have none. I'm the maker of my own meaning. Or back to Professor Nagel, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. See, fundamental to atheist belief is all people who believe in a religion are stupid. That is their fundamental acceptance of us. That's why they don't have to listen to us. It's true. That I don't believe in God and naturally I hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Here's one of the professors of philosophy at one of the biggest universities in the world. His atheism is built on what he wants. Romans 1, you should have known it already. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Dawkins, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. There is no good, there is no evil. You see, the universe to the atheist is meaningless, amoral. That's what it is. And atheist after atheist, this one's a psychologist atheist, this one, I think he's a Canadian, isn't he, Professor Jesse Prince? No amount of reasoning can engender a moral value because all values are, at bottom, emotional attitudes. When I say, oh, that's good, I'm just emoting. When I say that's disgusting, I'm just emoting. When I say that's evil, I'm just emoting. When I say that's unjust, I'm just emoting. There's no truth in anything, it's just my emotions. That's all it is. You see, being an atheist relieves you of being answerable to anybody. But it means that you are meaningless, purposeless, and amoral. Being answerable to God means that your life has meaning and purpose and morality. Values, virtues, love, justice, truth, all these things flow out of God. But without God, they all go out the window and you become sovereign. So, let me try and express it for you so that you see the implications of this. The judgment that something morally wrong is an emotional response, he says. See, philosophical materialism, there's no God, only matter, leads to economic materialism. All that matters is getting more. That's Western civilization. That's where the Enlightenment has taken us to. They all complain about economic materialism, but it's their philosophy that has driven it. Or again, the atheist dream or nightmare. Without God, there's no meaning. Without meaning, there's no morality. Without morality, there's no justice. Without justice, there's unrestrained power. Justice then becomes social engineering... And all government becomes tyranny. It's called the Gulag Archipelago of the Russian state. It's called tyranny. It's called whatever you see anyway. Power corrupts. So Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 is the verse we have. All the creatures of the universe join in singing as the elders lay down their crowns before him. Worthy art you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The reason for the whole universe to worship God is because he's the creator. So as we're going to explain the gospel to people, the first thing we've got to get them to understand is the creator. That's the starting point so that they will come to understand the end point.